Our reading this morning is a continuation in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3, 21 to 31, and it's out of the English Standard Version. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Well, hello, and very good to be with you today. My name is Brian Harris, and serve as pastor at large here at Kerry. And you would know in the last little while we've been going through this series from Romans. Now, if you were to say to me, so what's the key verse of Romans? What's, uh, what's the key big idea that's behind it? I guess there are a fair number that we could choose, but I'd be inclined to say Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And and I want us to think about that initially before we come on to Romans chapter 3, because I think you can only really make sense of Romans 3 if you're remembering this little backdrop, I am not ashamed of the gospel. So, So I wonder what you think of when you hear those words. Because sometimes we can read something in the Bible and we can assume our own context. But actually in the original context, it probably meant something a little bit different. Let me just help you to imagine a scenario. Just imagine, how many of you would say that you're extroverts? Extroverts, you'll happily raise your hands, won't you? I won't ask introverts to raise your hands because that's like like not something introverts like like to do very much. But there you go, those of you extroverts, you've been invited to a party. Uh, You don't know anyone there. Uh, 
And as you go in, by and large, people don't know each other either. And uh, let's just say you're a guy, and there are a group of guys together, and uh, it's kind of like just one of these awkward moments, kind of everyone just standing there, no one knows anyone. Uh, someone's got to start a conversation. What, what would you start to talk about? What do you think? I mean, quite likely, you would start to talk about the footy. Probably not, if you're from this church, why Carlton is the best, or something like that. Uh, but you, 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 you might start a conversation about the footy. That, that, that would be a reasonable thing. If you went into a mixed group, uh, you might say, so what you been watching on Netflix? Uh, have you seen The Good Liar? Which was actually a genuine question. It's quite a nice movie on Netflix if you haven't seen it. Uh, and like a thriller over the long weekend, that's got nothing to do with the sermon, but just a little tip uh, for in terms of what you could watch. And you might start then talking about Netflix or something like that. And that, 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 that's good, that would be very nice. If you went to a woman's group, I have no idea how would I know what you talk about in a women's group, but at any rate, I'm, I'm sure that you talk about something. But there's some things that you almost certainly wouldn't talk about. I mean, would you go in and would you say, so tell me, how much do you earn? Uh, and what benefits go with your job? And uh, you know, are you likely to get an increase sometime soon? And you probably wouldn't go in and you probably wouldn't say, um, so who'd you vote for at the last election? You're going to vote for this, the, the, this time. And you probably wouldn't go in and say, so do you believe in God? Do you go to church? What's your favorite Bible verse? Do you memorize scripture? I mean, you probably wouldn't do any of those things. Why? Well, because in Australia, you kind of don't really talk about your salaries. You don't really talk about politics. And you definitely don't talk about religion. And so when we hear a verse like this one, Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, we are probably going to be thinking, hey, listen, in, in Australia, it's like embarrassing to talk about religion. And Paul is saying to us, get over your embarrassment. I mean, you've got to, if people don't talk about Jesus, how will anyone know about him? And, and you might well have, have been to a sermon that, that, that has essentially said, um, listen, just get over your embarrassment. Who cares that Australians don't talk about religion? Just talk about it. I, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Don't you be ashamed of the gospel. And I've heard sermons like that. And, and fair enough. Except, let's remember context, context, context. When Paul is writing and when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he is not writing about a context where people felt embarrassed about talking about religion. Why? Because if you were Jewish, my goodness, you talked about nothing else but religion the whole time. And if you were part of the Greco-Roman world, you also spoke about very little other than religion most of the time. I mean, it was the favorite topic of conversation. It was exactly the same as if you're male talking about footy. It was, it was the thing to do. And, and therefore, when Paul says, listen, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, let's be very clear about this. He is not saying it is awkward to talk about God, get over it. He's not saying that, that, that at all. He's saying something much more fundamental. He's saying, as I go and talk about God, people are trying to, to shame me in one way or another and saying, this gospel that you actually talk about, that's odd. That's weird. Be embarrassed about it. So it's not talking about religion. It's actually the content of the religion that you're trying to promote. And, and a great deal of Romans then is written saying, listen, there is this view that somehow this new faith that we're talking about, this gospel, somehow it's disgraceful. And, and before we, we, 
we, we, we can't say, oh my goodness, why would they say that? Let's try to understand it, always when you get in a conflict situation, try and understand it from the other person's perspective. So, so what was being said about the Christian faith at these early stages? I mean, I think I've told you uh, many times before that the early church faced, uh, faced persecution. Um, this, they, 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 they weren't in too much persecution at this stage. These were the early years. So the Roman letters written somewhere between about 55 to 57 AD. So major persecution hadn't started, but it was just starting to build up. But nevertheless, uh, there were all kinds of rumors about Christians that, 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 that were starting to go around. So for example, uh, we know that, that, that Christians were not willing to say that Caesar was Lord, and therefore they were branded as traitors. We know that, I mean, you can hardly believe this one, but because, uh, you know, Paul had taught in some of his letters that we should greet one another with a holy kiss, that uh, the Romans, who thought they were so extraordinarily sexually depraved and perverse in every way, had never heard of anything like a holy kiss, and they just assumed that this must be some new form of depravity that was seriously wild and, and, and exotic. And furthermore, because Christians had their love feasts, where they ate from the body and drank from the blood of Jesus, the rumor went around that they were cannibals. So, so in summary form, the, the challenge that the early church faced was that they were viewed as being traitorous, kinky cannibals. I mean, just put that one together. So, so you go into a room, and you're wanting to talk about religion because that's what everyone always does, but the first thing that people think about as you say you're Christian, you say, you're a traitorous, kinky cannibal. Okay, so I'm a little bit ashamed about that. that. That's a shaming kind of thing that you've got to overcome. But for all that, that's not actually the main thing. Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a mystery uh, to Gentiles. Now, what's he getting at there? You see, once, once so, so, so I go into this party and I'm meeting these strangers and they've assessed me as being one of these weird Christian people, but then when I actually speak to them, it becomes much more serious because I start speaking about this God. Now, if it is a Jewish audience, I say, the Messiah has come, we crucified him. And, and at that point, just this blank look will come back to you. Why? Because if you're Jewish, you would have been raised on, amongst other passages, uh, what's it, De 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 Deuteronomy chapter 23, 21, uh, you know, cursed is anyone who dies on a tree. Now, now, if you were Jewish, amongst your philosophical discussions, what, one that you would sometimes have would, would be this one. So what is the worst thing in the world that can ever happen to anyone? What is the worst thing in the world that can happen to anyone? And, and you might say various things. You might say, you know, that my reputation would be ruined. My house burnt down. But, but there was a broad consensus that the worst thing that could happen to anyone, the, the, the thing that you would dread more than anything else, would be that you would be crucified because the Jews had seen people being crucified. When the Romans came and conquered, many, many, many people were crucified and, and they watched that death and they said, oh my goodness, if anyone dies like that, they, God must just hate them to allow something like that. God must be cursing them to allow something like that. And so when, when, when Paul starts to speak to Jews and he says, your Messiah has come and he's been crucified, we did it, 
is it? You've got to be kidding. Messiah is the one blessed by God. Messiah is the one spent, sent by God. How can Messiah be the one cursed by God? And we know he's cursed because you've said it yourself. He died on the tree. And he dies on the tree especially because we know that they must be hated by God. How can you proclaim? I mean, how can you say such a shameful thing that someone who is so cursed by God is actually Messiah? Shame on you, Paul. Shame on you. And if he moves to another context and you go to Greeks or Romans, their views on God were quite different. So, so, so they lived in a world where, where they, they, they believed that basically there were three spheres. There was the earth where we lived. There was the underworld with the, with, with the dead. And then there was the heavenly sphere where, where, where the gods lived. And um, the gods had a lovely existence up there. And uh, as you spoke about God, uh, you, you know, individual Romans or Greeks would have their particularly favored gods, and they believed in, in a pantheon of gods. There, there were lots of gods. But when Paul comes along and he says, okay, so I want to tell you about this God, and, and this God has come and lived amongst us, the first thing they would have said, you know, why would he do that? We know and in fact, they would process it like this. Okay, so this God that you're telling us about, we know all about the gods. Do they ever visit the earth? Yes, they do sometimes, not very often. But when they visit the earth, it is because they cannot hack it in their own realm. So basically, some of your inferior gods come to visit the earth from time to time. So, okay, Paul, for whatever reason, you wanting to champion an inferior god. Okay, fine. So, so tell us some more. So this inferior god comes, and he's presumably a bit lonely because he can't have any friends in the heavenly realm. So not particularly impressed, but, but come on, we love talking about this stuff. So, so, so say some more. Oh, so, so, so this god comes, and, um, and we kill him. And we kill him. And this is the God we must worship. I mean, this God is so pathetic that he can't hack it in his own realm. He comes to us humans, and we beat him up and crucify him. And somehow you're coming to us and you're saying that this God we must worship and adore. Paul, seriously, we thought that you had at least a double-digit IQ. I mean, this is just ridiculous. There is no way, no way, no way that, you see, see Paul said, I know that I come to you and I preach Christ. And Christ is a stumbling block to Jews, and it is just foolishness to Gentiles. And, 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 and it goes one step further, you see, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Well, you should be ashamed because you're traitorous, kinky, uh, kind of weird people. But it's not just that. You, 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 you proclaim a God who either is cursed by God or God who's weak and that we can beat up. But you then go on and say, you know, and this is my message. This God loves you, and this God wants to forgive you, and this God wants your friendship, and this God just accepts you. And doesn't matter what you've done, you can be forgiven, and all is okay. And both Jews and Gentiles would have just sat up and said, that is ridiculous. Religion has one key function in the world, and that is to make us morally better people. I mean, we know that that's the value of religion, that, that actually you look at yourself and you say, I must do something more. I must become a superior person. And you begin by saying, this God requires nothing from you. Thank you very much. Well, you've just undermined everything that religion stands for. So be ashamed, Paul. Be ashamed. You should be absolutely... I mean, how can you be speaking? 
you weird people talking about this defective, tiny God who just wants to love people and thinks that somehow that's good. And Paul recognizes that that's what he's up against. And he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And I'm going to write this letter to tell you why I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And as he begins to unpack it, he makes a, a range of different points. But, but we're looking at chapter 3 today. And chapter 3 from verse 21 on basically says two very, very critical things. Paul starts to argue back. And Paul says this. I am not ashamed of the gospel because you need to recognize that your view of God is trivial. Your view of God is inconsequential. The God that you think about is actually too small. And your view of yourself is hugely inflated. Your God is too trivial. Your view of yourself is inflated. Now, now, how does he develop this argument? Now, almost straight away, when he's, Paul has spoken in, in, in chapter 1, about I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he has gone on to say, listen, what we can know about God is visible for everyone to see. You see it in all of creation. And, and he's saying, listen, as you think about God, surely you see the majesty and the wonder and the extraordinariness of everything that's made. Only an extraordinary God could actually do this. So, so you have no excuse if you don't recognize that God should be worshipped and praised. Now, now, what are you doing in your religious enterprises? And he would recognize that in the religious world of, of the day, if you were a religious person, you started off by saying, and, and for all religions, I mean, while they had their own little distinct things, they, they basically had one thing in common. Now, what must you do to be in the right with this God? Or to put it slightly differently, uh, here we are, we have these, these three spheres, if you, you think in Greco-Roman world, we have these three spheres, the underworld, the, the, the realm of the dead, you don't want to be there. Uh, you've got this world here, and you've got the world of the gods. It would be wonderful if the gods would accompany you. So, so, so religion is this way of persuading the gods to lend you some of their power to accompany you through, through your life so that your life fares well. And then depending on, on your religion, you might also believe that there's an afterlife afterwards. Not, not, not religions weren't, weren't uh, kind of some, some said there was an afterlife, some said there weren't. Some gave two answers. If you were Jewish, if you were a Sadducee, you didn't believe there was an afterlife. If you were a Pharisee, you, 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 you did. So, so what's this kind of being the right with God for? It's to help you firstly on this plane here, which we know you live in, on the earth. And if it should be that there is an afterlife and you go to the heavenly realm, it is that this God would give you entry at the end. Now, how are you going to do that? And, and, and that's the question that every religion then asks. So, so how are you going to win the favor of this God to open these doors for you? And if you were Jewish, you, you basically said, with, with enormous difficulty, it's very hard. Because actually the Jews did have an extraordinary sense of the goodness and the grace and, and the majesty of God. And they had devised 613 commandments that you had to keep. So if you wanted to know how you would win the favor of God, there were 613 commandments to keep. Interestingly enough, 365 of them were things that you should not do, negative commandments. So if you're a Jewish rabbi and you're having a, a, a group of your students, you'd say, so my young friends, uh, there's one for every day of the year. Every day of the year, there's a new thing that you must remember that you mustn't do. But don't think that that, me that means you don't have to not do the other 364. Just refresh your memory each day of the year, a new thing not to do. 
And there were 248 commands which were viewed as positive commands, things that you needed to do. Now, interestingly enough, if you'd asked a Jewish rabbi, why 248? They would say because there are 248 bones in the body and doing positive things makes your body strong. Uh, not, not in actual fact, there aren't 248 bones in the body, uh, but that's what the ancients believed. If you go to Wikipedia, the font of all wisdom, it will tell you there are 200, you're born with 270 bones, and then some of them fuse as you grow and you land up with 206. So maybe someone counted the corpse of someone kind of mid-range in that process, I don't know. But the Jews and the ancients believed that there were 248 bones in your body, and it was like you did something positive, and it was like you really strengthen yourself by doing all these positive things. And it was like beautifully thought out. So, so every day of the year, there's something you remember that you don't do. Uh, for every bone in your body, there's something positive that you must do. And then, you know, add a little bit of the mercy of God, and perhaps you can be in the right with God. So, 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 so that would be a Jewish kind of a commandment uh, answer. How are you going to win the favor of God? Keep these 613 laws. If you were in the Greco-Roman world, well, it depended on which god you worshipped. Because actually, there was such a range of gods. Some of them were actually pretty paltry. Some of them were morally thoroughly suspect. Some of them were, were, were quite depraved. And, and what you were required to do uh, varied enormously. I mean, the, at the one end, there, there, there was the genuinely tragic. And as you go through the history of the ancient world, you will find that many, many, many parts of the ancient world practiced child sacrifice. I mean, I mean it's, it's horrendously tragic, but it is the reminder that many of the ancients thought to win the favor of our God, we must sacrifice our firstborn child, and, and child sacrifice was quite common. Uh, there, were, there were all kinds of other things that you might have to do to win the favor of God. Sometimes they were quite trivial. You had to offer chicken. Uh, this God would be content with a goat. Uh, some were really quite bizarre. And many of the, of, of the temples in the ancient world were, in fact, the brothels of, of, of their time. Now, let's be very clear, that was never the Jewish temple. But many of the temples of some of the ancient religions were brothels. And, and there were all ways, kinds of ways in which you, you could win the favor of your God. But that was the quest. How do you win the favor of your God? And Paul comes into the midst of this and he says, oh my goodness, you have got it so wrong. Do you really think that God is so small that you can, can, can kind of get him into your debt? Do you really think that God is so pathetic that this God who made all the universe is going to look at what you've done and says, oh my goodness, I owe you. I really have to not come. Oh dear, I didn't want to have you, but now, now that you've done that, now that you've sacrificed your child, or now that you've offered me 37 chickens, or now that you've done whatever, I am so in your debt, so now I've got to go out of my way. So Paul says, you, you don't, your idea of God is bizarre. I'm sorry, I'm not the one who should be ashamed. You are the one who should feel ashamed that you think that this God of all the universe is so small and so tiny and so paltry that he can be brought over by you. And furthermore, says Paul, you should be ashamed because your view of yourself is so extraordinarily inflated. And so, so one, one of the key verses in, in, in Romans, Paul says here in Romans chapter 3, in, in verse 23, a verse that perhaps you've learned off by heart. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul says, think about who this God really is. Now, how do you match up to this God? Now, now notice when Paul starts to talk about everyone sinning, he does not say this. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the standard set by their ancestors. No. For all have sinned and fall short of the standard set by their neighbor. No. For all have sinned and are not as good as their grandmother. No. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ah, nailed it. You see, see, see Paul is actually saying, if you want to be in God's company, then somehow you've got to match God. You know, why else would God be interested? I mean, really, do you think that you match God? You see, human sinfulness is that we have been made in the image of God and somehow perpetually fall short of that. So, so, so we sometimes, when we think about sin, we think that sin is about being this terrible person who goes and cuts people's throats. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says your sinfulness is that you are made to, to reflect the image of God, and somehow we perpetually fall short of that. There is no way that we can actually claim that we have an automatic right to God. You, you, you see, I think in one way or another, he's saying, you don't realize how completely out of your league you are. You don't realize how completely out of your league you are. Let, let me give you a trivial example for myself. So, as many of you know, I grew up in South Africa, white South African male in the days of, of apartheid. I had to do two years of military training. While well, I was busy doing my, my basic training, it was a, a sore trial, I can assure you. A kind of endless kind of push-ups and press-ups and running around and everything else. But there was one bright, bright moment because every Wednesday afternoon they had what was known as sports parade. And the torture would temporarily stop uh, and we were allowed to go off to, to whatever sport we had chosen. Now, on the first day that that, 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 that took place, uh, we were told, right, there's sports parade and we, the, the range of sports were listed and we were told, right, you can go up and, and you can play whatever sport you want. I, I didn't actually know that there was a long understanding that you, you had to go and play rugby unless you were an elitist sports person and then you could play one of the other options which were given. But apparently that was the understanding. So. I see everyone kind of going off playing rugby. I know I played a little bit of rugby at school, so I thought maybe I'd go there, but I'd also played hockey at school. So I thought, okay, why don't I go off and join, join the people playing hockey? So I go, and there's this, just, just this little group of us go off, and we go into this bus that's going to drive us down, down to the hockey fields. And the coach for the hockey team's on there, and so he says, okay, fellows, let's introduce ourselves to one another. Just, just, just say your name and say who, which team you last played for. And the first person starts off. And the first person says, right, I'm Ryan or whatever his name was, and I play hockey for South Africa and have for the last six years. I thought, oh, that's interesting. Uh, and then the person next to him says, yes, I'm Brett, and I haven't played in the South African team for quite as long as Ryan has, but I've been there for the last three years. And it goes on like this, and like everyone is playing in this unbelievable team. The, 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 the most lowly person played for Western Province, which, which is like one of the states over there. And then there's me. And kind of as all eyes turn to me, I say, I'm Brian, and I occasionally made it into the school team. <laughs> and it's, oh my goodness. Like, and, and we get onto the field, and we start playing. I mean, I think it must have been the most humiliating day in my entire life. I mean, these people were seriously good, seriously good. And I was seriously ordinary. And I was so out of my league. And I knew immediately I do not belong on this field at all. I just do not 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 belong in this field. I don't want, and I went off and played rugby the next week. Um, now multiply that 10,000 times. Multiply that 10,000 times. And Paul is saying, that's what it's like to be in the presence of God. I mean, you think you're so great 
until you realize who you're comparing yourself to. And then you realize, this is not my place. I am outdone. I can't like say, here God, take this chicken, or here God, you know, I'll do some small thing and expect God to say, wow, so impressive. I mean, pathetic. And Paul says, everything you've said about God is wrong. There, there has to be another way. There has to be another way. And, and so listen to this extraordinary teaching then that, 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 that he gives in, in Romans chapter 3. But now, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God or the goodness or the majesty or the glory of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. This goodness is just given to you through faith in Jesus Christ. If you believe, if you believe, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have the same problem, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one can buy their way in, no one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified all are made right again, freely by his grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, as a sacrifice of making things right, through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? Where then is boasting? It is excluded. So, what has Paul been saying there? He's saying... The human quest is to find a relationship with God. It is the deepest desire of the human heart. St. Augustine said, oh, we are, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And, and we know that we have been made to be in relationship with God, but when we're there, we realize we are done. God is in a different lead altogether. And we, we would tarnish heaven and we would tarnish the presence of God if we were there. What is to be done? And furthermore, we, we live in a world where justice must reign and justice must rule. And we live in a world where, where yes, there is the satanic. And if God were simply to say, well, well, never mind, never mind, you know, I'll overlook everything you've done wrong, Satan would say, where then is justice? Where then is justice? And in our own hearts, we would know that it would not be all right because we know that the history of the world is the history of our cruelty to one another. And we know the terrible things have been done and somehow that has to be acknowledged. Somehow that has to be met. And so we are told that in some strange way, at the cross of Jesus, the price for everything is paid. And, and you may say, I don't see how that can work. Maybe this little example will help. 
So, so here you are, you're a great Western Australian, and we're all trapped in the state at the moment. So people are, are currently thinking about going and exploring places up north that they usually would never dream of going to, but there are not many options, are there? So, 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 so let's say you, 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 you want to go to Exmouth, and it's 1,249 kilometers away, and I know that because I checked, because my wife is wanting me to go, and I thought, oh my goodness, if I have to drive all that distance, that would be nightmarish. So, 1,249 kilometers, and in a moment of madness, you say, yes, let's go and visit Exmouth, and you've got your kids, and you get in the car, and you say, ah, we're Western Australians, we can travel these vast distances in no time at all, uh, you know, we'll just drive through in one shot, and so you do. And you actually make it, but it is exhausting. Oh my goodness. And the kids are playing up in the back the whole time. And maybe a little bit unwisely, you kind of feed them lollies the whole way through the trip. You know, just keep quiet. What will keep you quiet? Have another jelly bean. Have another jelly bean. Have... So, so you do that. And, you know, 13 hours later, you arrive. And you're frazzled and you're exhausted. And you go to your room. You've got kind of these interleading rooms. The kids have got one room. You've got your room. You just collapse into the bed. <sighs> Dreadful journey. Uh, but you're so tired, you're so exhausted, you just sleep, sleep the sleep of the dead, and you, you're gone till the morning. But your kids have eaten jelly beans all day, and they are on this huge sugar high, and they see that you are sleeping in your room there, and they go wild, and they have this wonderful time. And the TV is smashed, and all the linen is torn up, and the, I mean, I don't know what the kids do, but at any rate, what your brats might do, just, just, just kind of imagine them going absolutely wild. And, and, the, and the next morning, the, the, the room is just, just terrible. And you wake up thinking, oh, thank goodness that journey's over. And you go through to see the next room, and oh my goodness, you just look at your kid's room, and it is a wreck. And the cleaner's coming through at that point, and she takes one look at it, and she runs off, and she gets the manager, and the manager says, so who's going to pay for this? Who is responsible? Who is going to pay for this? Now, what do you say at that point in time? I mean, is that your fault? No. It's a horrible little brats that somehow you bred. Uh, and <laughs> there's a huge part of you that, 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 that's just wanting to say, they must pay. They did it. It's their responsibility. But another part of you realizes it's not who you are, it's whose you are that really matters, and they are yours. And so you drag out your credit card, and you grit your teeth, and you see all the dollars being paid, and it's settled, and it's done, and it's over, because of whose they are. Now, now, now this really is what Paul is saying. God has said, I have made you, and I love you, and you are mine. And oh my goodness, the debt that you have created and the mess that you've built up. And I've come back in and this room is more than trashed. One wall after another. An environment that has completely degraded. Enough power to blow this world apart at, no t at any point whatsoever. I mean, it's just, what have you done? What have you done? But you are mine. And I can hear Satan saying, so you made this great world, and you're just going to do nothing about all that they've done? And I say, no, I'll, I'll pay the price. I'll pay the price. And it's not because of who they are. It's because of whose they are. And so Jesus takes my place at the cross, and the debt is paid, 
and the one who is just is also the justifier, says Paul. And it takes place at the cross. And why does that make any difference for me? Well, says Paul, at this point, you have a choice. You can keep on insulting the God of the universe and saying, have a chicken, have a pig. I'll do this for you. I can keep 613 laws, perhaps, sometimes. Or you can say, Lord, have mercy on me. And thank you that you're willing to say that I'm your child. You, you see, that that's why the critical thing about being a Christian is not who you are. And, and, and we live in a world where all the emphasis is on who are you, who are you, who are you. That's not the question the Bible asks. The question the Bible asks is, whose are you? Whose are you? And it is why the Bible constantly says, you are in Christ. You are in Christ. So by faith, you say, Lord, it's about what you have done. And now I am in Christ. And in Christ, I am justified. And in Christ, I'm redeemed. And it's nothing that I've done. And so Paul then asks this logical question, where then is boasting? Where then is boasting? And he says, it's excluded. It's excluded. So, so, so right at the start, we said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because these people seem a bit dodgy. I'm, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You should be because, you, you, you know, look at what this God does. Surely you must be weak doing it this way. I'm not ashamed. I'm ashamed of the gospel because surely people will become defective if you just forgive them. No, no. You see, here's where Paul hits back. He says, so where then is boasting? It is excluded. And he says, you know, when you realize whose you are, you stop your pride and you stop your boasting and you stop your self-sufficiency and you start saying, Lord Jesus, I am yours. Do the work in me that needs to be done. And genuine transformation takes place. You see, when Paul comes in, he's saying to everyone, everything you've ever thought about God is wrong. And it is because your God is too trivial. Your God is too small. And it is also because you don't understand the nature of God. You, you, you see, if you've been back there, if, if I were to say to you today, finish the sentence, God is, God is. How many of you would finish it, God is love? Most of you would have said that, wouldn't, wouldn't you? The ancients wouldn't have said that. They would have said, God is powerful. God is angry. God is vengeful. God is jealous. God, I mean, they, they would have said all kinds of things. Paul says God is love. You've never thought of that before. But that's because you've never understood that love is strong, that love forgives, that the love of Jesus that says Jesus going to, to the cross is so powerful that even as Jesus is destroyed, he goes down into the place of the, of the dead. And because he goes in love, love cannot hold him and death is destroyed because God's love is powerful and ultimately it changes even us. You see, if you could win God over by handing him a chicken or keeping some commandments, where then would be boasting? Everywhere. Amazing me, trivial God. But this gospel is quite different. No boasting, just deep gratitude and love. The God who loves me, accepts me, forgives me, and says that I am in Christ and part of his family. Let's pray together.
Paul says that all this is received by faith. Something that you've just got to trust. Something that you've just got to see that you can't actually do this on your own. And many of you have taken that step. Perhaps most of you have taken that step. But maybe some of you still on that old paradigm where you think that you've desperately got to win the favor of God. God shakes his head and says, you don't realize you're out of your league. You can't do it. But put your trust in me and all will change. And if you've never done that before, why not just do that today? Say, Lord Jesus, thank you for what you did at Calvary for me. Forgive me for what I've done wrong. I put my trust in you. Thank you that I can be part of your family. Thank you for the future and the hope that you give to me. Amen.